And you're welcome to the RTE Rugby podcast ahead of the Heineken Cup final this weekend. Delighted to be joined, as always, by Donald Lennon, Bernard Jackman and Wes Liddy. And lads, you're all very welcome. I guess we'll start with the weekend just gone, Donald, if you don't mind. And I don't know whether Munster didn't want to play in the final or they just heard that the South African sides were coming with them and decided, nah, we don't really need this this season. But they certainly ruined a very good chance to book their place in the Rainbow Cup final by the defeat to Connacht on the Friday night. Yeah, they did. I mean, typical Munster. Um, every time they were in touch of doing something, I think they're making serious progress. As you know, they were very impressive against Ulster the previous week. Uh, they come up short. Um, now, I think, look, we've got to give fair credit to Connacht. Uh, firstly, a great game. And, you know, we have been a bit critical. We've been sceptical about the, uh, the Rainbow Cup. Uh, but I have think over the past couple of weeks, we've given due credit to the um, the competitiveness of the local derbies. And again, I thought we were treated with two fantastic games, two really competitive games. Um, but Munster, I mean, that announcement coming on, on the Friday morning, the fact that you are going to have this uh, a meeting of minds, a first ever, you know, a club final between Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, Munster in the driving seat, uh, you know, go out and beat Connacht. Uh, you've two games to go, uh, Cardiff at home, Zebra away, and surely you can, you know, you, you cement your place in that final. Uh, I thought, you know, you know, we're going to talk about refereeing decisions and all that, but I think all those are cop-outs. They're, they're excuses. The bottom line is that game was well within their compass to win it, and they didn't do it. And I, I think, um, Bernard, but you it know... Matters, we've been down this road before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to give Connacht their, their full credit, Bernard, I often think if Connacht were given... Um, I guess, more resources or if they had more of the calibre of players perhaps that we see in some of the other provinces that they could be the leaders in terms of shining the light on how to play this game because Andy Friend has done a really good job, a bit like uh, how Pat Ladden did before him uh, and they were full value for the win, I thought, overall. No, they, look, they took their opportunities and then they hung in and they took Munster out of their comfort zone. So the previous two games that we were very impressed with, Munster, Leinster and Ulster, they were completely dominant um, at the breakdown and Connacht got amongst them and uh, they got there first at times um, and they, uh, you know, when they weren't there first, they, they disrupted them um, and they took Munster completely out of their stride. And uh, I think they did deserve, they did deserve the win because it took a huge effort and particularly the resilience they showed, obviously bouncing back from a very tough game uh, defeat to Leinster, you know, realistically they had nothing on the line, you know, they were looking at, finishing their season with three or four um, games that couldn't really get them anywhere. And yet they they managed to bring a, a performance um, that shook Munster. And, you know, they surely rolled their luck. Um, you know, they, they, they didn't dominate possession or territory in the game, but they took their chances and and uh, they got a famous win. And I, I just think, you know, they've shown now winning in Ravenhill, winning in the RDS and winning in, in Thomond Park in the same year um, that they have... A, a team to, to go to war with the three provinces. The problem they have is is the strength and depth you, and that's down to yeah. resource. And that's why we see that's why we see them not being able to do it week in week out, particularly when they have a few injuries. But that's that's understandable given the fact that they have a, a significantly smaller budget than the, than the other provinces. But I, I think Andy Friend, you know, part of the, the great job he's doing is he's keeping that squad together and not letting those really frustrating defeats that they had earlier in the year. I think back to Munster at home, you know, when they 13 v 15, like they're hard to take, but he seems to manage the, the squad's uh, mind and uh, mental state to be able to bounce back from those, which is a, it's a challenge in itself. So yeah, look at their, 
you know, they, they now can look back in the season with, with a lot of positives, um, even though they don't have any silverware or, you know, knockout uh, finals to, to, to look back on. But I think they are building. And obviously with a few new coaches coming in over the summer, um, and I'm sure there'll be a couple of recruits as well. Obviously, they need to replace Quinn Rue. Um, yeah, I think they're looking. They're, I, what I like about them is they've depth in, in the key positions. Depth at nine now with Marmion and Blade. Depth at Hooker with um, with Heffernan um, and uh, what's his name? Hello Hunt. Yeah, Hello Hunt. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, and then fullback, you know, Tierney Haller and John Porch, etc. So they never had that before. Um, so yeah, they're definitely on the right track. What I like about them, uh, Wes, is that you know because of the way that they play. The sum of their parts sometimes is greater than, I guess, the, the, the paper opposition. And by that, I mean, like Andy Friend has them playing a system of rugby that's actually, first of all, really enjoyable to watch. Um, but also, it's capable of beating some of the best teams on their day, such as the manner in which they're comfortable passing the ball and are prepared to actually run the ball from pretty much anywhere. Yeah, um, I agree with you generally, but... Um... I think ironically, um, and kind of in keeping with the, the team of inconsistency that's maybe dogged their season a little bit, um, I don't think they actually had to be at their most constructive to win the other night. There was phenomenal effort, there was phenomenal resilience, some of the tackle stats were incredible, as, as Birch said, but I don't think they actually had to play their best attacking rugby to win that game. They were they were gifted two tries with, with horrendous errors, really. Um uh, I do think there's probably... Look, it's brilliant to beat the other three provinces away from home, first and foremost. Um, the funding thing is is probably an interesting one with Connacht and this kind of, you know, quote-unquote notion of them as a development province um, and how relevant that really is anymore and how if, if that's possibly an outdated idea and something that needs to be looked at. Um, as far as the game itself, I, I thought it was... I thought it was almost so incongruous some of the stuff that happened that it doesn't even bear analysis in a lot of ways because there were things that happened multiple times that it was hard to even judge the given player on because we know that typically they're better than that. Uh, I think back to like, I think back to Ben Ben Healy having a, a three or a four on one overlap at one point and loads of time just deciding not to pass. I think back to Joey Carberry throwing an offload to a Connacht player at one point when they're in the 22 kicking the ball straight down the pitch and another. So there was a kind of a maelstrom of circumstances of a very poor Munster performance, a very motivated Connacht performance, some strange refereeing in, in both teams' direction and that produced a kind of a, a very entertaining but a very, um, I suppose, unorthodox kind of game, I thought. Um, but I suppose both teams as well since have been um, the news of Stephen Fitzgerald having to retire and James Cronin being released, obviously, are both um, big talking points within each province, respectively, since then as well. Yeah, and we'll come back to those two as well in a second. But, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's been a theme of Munster this season, Donald, for probably a few seasons beforehand. You mentioned it before in this podcast and you've written about it as well, that, you know, when it comes to the crunch for Munster, you know, forget about the teams that, that kind of broke the mold and won the Heineken Cup back in 2006, 2008. When it came to big games, they were able to, to lift their performances level. But Munster have had big games this season. They've just utterly failed to, to, to play up to expectation. Yeah, I think that's the most frustrating part for me because uh, almost in every game, you see glimpses of improvements in terms of their, their alignment in attack, the variety in terms of, of, of their attack. Uh, as always, their set piece is strong. Their line-out mall is strong. Uh, then they kind of, you know, there was a number of games when they got the balance wrong between uh, 
between their kicking game and in terms of, of trying to retain that possession or, or put the opposition back three under pressure. Uh, so it's hugely frustrating. And, um, you know, having, uh, like for me, probably the, the most frustrating performance was the Pro 14 final against Leinster when they just didn't turn up. I mean, I don't buy into, you know, the subsequent hype and they went up and beat Leinster a couple of weeks later in the, the opening round of, of the Rainbow Cup. That was irrelevant for me, really, because it all comes down to what you do when the pressure is greatest and you have to perform. And again, uh, it's just happened on too many occasions. Um, so th that for me is is really worrying. And that's why now, having been a bit sort of sceptical or cynical about the, rain, uh, the Rainbow Cup, I actually think a monster need to recover from what happened last weekend and get to that final. Uh, it, it would mean something to this group there's no doubt about that like there is psychological baggage there whether they like to uh, admit it or not but I think you know to get to get to a final now whether they'll be good enough to beat it looks like to, uh, the Bulls or the Sharks will probably be the representatives from South Africa but I'd love to see it I'd love to see you know can uh, where are where are they in, in relation to to that particular opposition um but it's just, look, it comes down to performances on days that matter. And that is why I'm a huge, I, I've been hugely impressed by Andy Friend over the past number of years for a variety of reasons. Not least, I think, what, what Birch alluded to, in that they do have their disappointing days as well when things go against them or they just don't stand up or physically they're blown away. And you can understand that because when they're short four or five of their frontline players, it's more difficult for them. But I think a true measure of a coaching group is how you blend a group together, number one, how you build that resilience and the manner in which they bounce back from, let's be honest, they were filleted by Leinster down, having gone 14 nil off on the, you know, in the, the sports ground, you know, a, a great start to the game and they were just blown away. Yes, yeah. they were able to rock up the following day and he has instilled that belief. And, I, you know, I, I mentioned three players within that kind of setup this year. Every time I see them, they impress me. Gavin Thornbury, like we know his history, didn't get a, um, an opportunity in Leinster for understandable reasons, went off to New Zealand, uh, played a season or two down there. He's got better and better um, every time he's played to the extent, you know, that, you know, Quinn Roo and Ulton Delan are obviously the two top second rows in, in Connacht. But when Thornbury comes in, they lose nothing. In fact, they gain in other areas. Young Niall Murray, we've seen him involved with the Irish 20s, you know, and he was kind of uh, behind the likes of Charlie Ryan and these guys who were in the Leinster setup. Yes, outstanding last week. And Tom Daly is another, uh, um, you know, came out of Leinster, uh, played a lot of AIL with Lansdowne ended up captaining the team like you don't become captain uh, th that's a reflection of where you are within the group your ability to influence other people and this was a guy and we've harped on it numerous times about the role of club rugby he's another guy I think that you can look to that Connacht and Andy Friend have resurrected his career he's had a fantastic season um, so uh, that that's why I admire Friend and Connacht and you know at times maybe we're guilty we don't give them the credit that they deserve here. Yeah, absolutely. And look, a big talking point, Birch, was um, in both games, the Lens Grosser game, which will come to in a second as well, was the performances of the referees. In particular, Munster Peter Manny was hugely aggrieved with what he felt were a couple of decisions that sh should have gone their way and didn't, and vice versa as well. 
obviously Joy Neville had a role to play in her interjection as TMO. Um, Peter Armani was so annoyed after the game that he wouldn't even speak to the post-match interviews. He put CJ Stander up, who pretty much had nothing to lose and said exactly how he felt. And referee was a 16th man. Was not as bad as that in your view? The performance? Look, I actually don't think um, he was biased against Munster. I just think he he had a very poor performance and he lost control. And you know, it's become normal for us to have a little bit of an all-in early in these interprovincials, whatever. But it needs to be dealt with there and then. And when you let it simmer, um, like it was allowed to uh, to happen, then. Uh, both teams kind of lost trust in, in the referee's ability to lay down um, any sort of discipline. And, and like we saw subs getting involved and not just like involved quite significantly in, in, in one of the brawls and, and a little bit in the second one. And, you know, the answer is the answer the referee gave was, you know, I can't punish the subs. And I actually don't know the rule book on that because I, I, um, I've never seen subs being involved in it. But I would say, look, if he, uh, um, a stance on it and, and it proved to be outside the rules I don't think anyone would really have any uh, massive issues like we don't want to see that we don't want to see subs getting involved in all ins it just becomes so hard to control so I just think bit by bit over the course of the game um, they lost the sense of control the sense of discipline and at the end definitely Munster were more frustrated because they were chasing it they were chasing the score and they felt at the end they, they had a legitimate captain's challenge um, that didn't go their way, etc., etc. But I could see it. I was at the ground. I could see the frustration, the body language. Um, maybe I don't know if it was picked up on camera, off camera, um, amongst the Munster players in particular. But that's Connor had moments where they were frustrated as well. Um, but I, I think, and I highlighted this, you know, a couple of months ago. Um, we're at a level now where in the Pro 14, now <clears throat> very few players or coaches have any confidence in the match officials to actually um, perform at a high level. And we saw, uh, uh, like, um, Mike Adamson in, in the in the last couple of minutes in the Leinster-Ulster game, you know, turns back to a player and tells him to shut up, you know, as he's running to the next rook. And, and that, you know, uh, Ian Madigan was picked up on the ref, Mike, you know, obviously speaking, um, speaking his mind and speaking out of turn about the decision. You know, everyone saw the way Ian Henderson was, was getting... Um, you know, flabbergasted by the decision about the Robbie Henshotting. So we're seeing now players uh, lose control, right? And, that, and, and look, you can blame the players or whatever, and, and they need to be better, 100% need to be better. But also, I think the officials need to be better. And, you know, I know I, I, when I was coaching the Dragons, um, I had massive issues uh, with referees. And, and Greg Garner, who's the head of referees, was brilliant. You know, every Monday morning, you know, he replied to my email and the footage, and, and he accepted that there was... A lot of errors, okay, and it wouldn't just be our opposition would have had the same thing. It wasn't they were biased against the dragons, um, it was just poor official uh, officiating. And unfortunately, you know, like the, the Pro 14 coaches, they call the referees the apologists, okay, like that's they're not they don't call them the referees, they call them the apologists because on a Monday morning you get apologies, right? But next Friday, next Saturday, the same thing again. So, where's the improvement? Um, we see the Pro 14 referees, they're not really getting up to the top level of Six Nations or World Cups. Uh, so I think it's, an, it's just another area of the game that we've, we've slipped back on. And in fairness to the referees, the game is moving on faster than they're able to keep up. Right? So uh, there is a challenge there. And it is a very difficult thing. Uh, it's a very difficult sport to referee at the moment. 
but again, I'm not really worried about the law's end of it. I, I can understand someone misses misses a, a, an offside line or a technical infringement to breakdown. That happens. For me, it's the relationship side of it. We've lost complete ability to have a relationship with the referee uh, in a positive way where we talk to each other like adults. And, you know, the Mike Adamson one, you know, I've never heard a referee tell a player to shut up. Yeah, like in play, you know, I've heard a referee when they're engaging with them to say, listen, be quiet, you know. Mm. Uh, uh, but like the game, he's running to a rook and he turns back and shouts at someone. Like, I don't know who it is. It's a lesser player. You shut up. You know what I mean? That shows you the referees are getting, um, they're out of, out of control as well. They're out, of their, they're out of the zone as such. And it's very hard to, I mean, if you look at a sniper training, you know, they, they, it's all about staying calm. It's not about you know being out of control, making good decisions. It's about being able to stay calm. And I just think play, referees at the moment, they've got their back up from the start of games. The players have got their back up from the start of games, and we're seeing a lot of conflict, which we need to we need to get it sorted out because it's not helping the spectacle, it's not helping uh, the referees, it's not helping the players, it's helping nobody. And I think the um, the captain's challenge, whereas if anything has highlighted the amount of mistakes the referees are making, because almost every captain's challenge <laughs> has proven to be correct and true in what the captains have been saying. Um, if you wanted a snapshot, I think, about maybe, you know, the officialing and, and I guess where they're at confidence-wise, that Robbie Henshaw tackle, which we'll get into um, the rights and wrongs of that in a second, but I was at the RDS, Mike Adamson, the game lasted two hours, by the way, almost two hours for a match to take place. Mike Adamson and Ollie Hodges had a discussion for five minutes on whether or not the Robbie Henshaw tackle warranted a yellow card, red card, or any kind of um, disciplinary action whatsoever. Ollie Hodgins on three occasions said to Mike Adamson, there is no contact, clear contact with the head. Um, Mike Adamson asked for other angles, saw every angle 17 times over, still couldn't make up his mind. Again, asked the same question, which was told the same answer three or four times. It took five minutes, no action was taken. And I thought, if you want a snapshot of where the referees are at, that's a pretty good indicator as far as I'm concerned about where we're at here. He mustn't have done enough of that sniper training, I think, is, is probably the answer there, Hugh, you know. Um, yeah, it was a joke, uh, the Henshaw one. He either hit him or he didn't. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't exclusive to that one. Um, I think Birch said about the players having lost confidence in the referees. I was talking to a, a player during the week that was involved last weekend, and they've also lost confidence in the touch judges. Um, so I was told of an example where James Cronin, there was a Connacht player lying over the ball and he's slapping a player on the back two yards from a touch judge, pointing out that he's killing the ball, he's ignored. And things like this happen multiple times throughout the game. You look at the communication between the referee uh, and the TMO, or sorry, the video ref. And, uh, you know, like if, if you look at that Munster Connacht game, one of the ones penalised was when uh joy neville interjected herself which i'm not even sure on the protocols around the interjection unless asked for which isn't hasn't been made clear at all but then on some of the cases where the referee asked for her counsel so to speak um he just completely ignored the advice on that last play which i think the decision was right by the way but she said it's clear knock on off one red uh or it's off the boot of one red and he just ignored it said knock on I don't know if you remember the Dennis Buckley turnover on their own line as well. Two phases before that, you can hear on the ref mic, uh, green three and five offside. Yeah. Ignored. Two phases later, penalty the other way. Um, so it's it's that 
it's that inconsistency is easier to say but it's not adhering to the protocol of how these things are meant to be implemented that i think causes the frustration in a lot of cases but the communications another one that birch outlined like i was never a fan of the kind of yes or no sort of stuff in rugby that was held up as this great model of how to communicate with referees i think it's completely outdated in this day and age you didn't you didn't grow up with that principle in limerick no you didn't no, no I think, like, Nigel Owens used to be doing it for years and we all got a great laugh out of it. It's not soccer. And I remember him telling Billy Holland how to jump in a line-out one time. It's ridiculous that you talk to grown men, professionals like this. Um, so it, it's multi-layered and you can't... The quality of referee, you probably can't divorce from what's happening at grassroots level because that's where referees come from. Um, and there's just lots and lots to unpack with it. Um, but it, it's kind of reached a tipping point, certainly within the, the Pro 14 competition as it stands. I imagine, Donald, it must be hugely frustrating for coaches to get apology letters from referees the Monday after they know that they've made massive mistakes. It's absolutely no good to either side sending apologies. Well, it's too, it's, it's too late after the event, but, uh, you know, if you learn to live with that, when the same problem arises the following week to what they identified was a mistake the previous week, then you can see why they're so frustrated. But look, uh, can I say, um, uh, I do remember being told shut up by a referee once myself, and uh, he was probably right. He disallowed a perfect try for me, and I kept <laughs> running after him. Oh, in the name of Jesus, did you miss that? So he did tell me to shut up, but he was probably right. Uh, I would say, in terms of what's happening at the moment, is the control of the referee has been diluted by the system. We're adding so many layers yeah. into refereeing, and we spoke about this in the last few weeks. You have the TMOs, you know, the captain's challenge even. I've seen a number of games over the past number of weeks where the referees are telling, well, no, you can't challenge that because there wasn't, a, there wasn't a penalty given there. Then you have this scenario in the last 10 minutes when you can challenge something different to what you've been doing the, in the previous 70 minutes. So even the people, the professionals, the captains, they're not 100% sure what they're entitled to come in and what they're not entitled to. You then have the advent of the TMO. Uh, the TMO uh, was to uh, originally foul play and events uh, in the act of scoring a try. Now they're being used for everything. Forward passes, potential knock-ons. I watched a game, Bristol and, and Gloucester the other night, and there were seven tries. Gloucester had seven tries disallowed, I think six in the first half. Now, to be fair... Uh, I think the vast majority of them were correct and low when you went back. But again, that was another game that lasted over two hours. It's just become a sideshow. This whole thing, all this intervention, it's diluting the power of the referee. And I think because a lot of the, the referees generally in Pro 14, they are the younger, play, the younger guys, if you like, and who are on the way up. So they're subject to um, their peers analyzing the thing they do on the field. And I think there's an element of fear with the referees where they're thinking about their assessor and what he's going to say to them after the game. So therefore, he's afraid to take decisions. Uh, you know, Birch mentioned the intervention of, of the subs on two occasions. I mean, it was ridiculous. Um, if, just, if you did have a Nigel Owens or a Wayne Barnes, they just started that out straight away. Yellow card, a fellow from either side on the field, as a consequence almost of what the subs were doing, because it was an all-in. You could have made an example of two fellas and say, not putting up with this anymore, and that's the end of it. So therefore, you reap what you sow. But I think um, 
Uh, it's the way the whole, the, the, the evolution of referee and control of the game, that the way it has gone in the past number of years has brought us to this point where there's almost nothing that happens on the field that isn't sent upstairs for adjudication. That's why we end up having games that last two hours. We're bored. You've heard me numerous times in the commentary box. Why are we keeping going back looking at a clip? It's definitive. It's a try. It's not a try. It's a high tackle. It is contact to the head. What are they doing? Would you yeah. ever hurry on and get to the point? Mike Adamson looked, Birch, absolutely terrified to make a decision in the Robbie Henshaw tackle. It was almost like he wanted Ollie Hodges to say there has been contact to the head, so then he could follow his protocols and he knew exactly what to do. But he was left in limbo because he's looking at a tackle that obviously was fairly full on. Clearly, Ian Henderson wasn't happy about, but yet there was no contact to the head. So he was kind of like, well, what, am I, what do I do here? What do I hear? And this has led to a bit of a debate about the, the merits of the tackle itself. Now, I got into a bit of a, an argument about this last night because I think there's no contact to the head. It was a hard hit. Therefore, play on. There's nothing to see here. But the argument against that and the argument that I've read over the last couple of days from plenty of people is that it was um, a reckless tackle and that in and of itself should have been punished because it was reckless. What, where do you stand on this? I, I, I don't see how, how the referee can do anything else because that, he didn't break any laws, to be honest. I mean, yeah. um, you know, uh, it was very aggressive, but he didn't break any laws so it's in the law and it's um so i don't have an issue with it to be honest i, I know people are outraged by it and saying it was a bad example but unless I, I don't in this situation i don't blame mike adamson i'm sure he was afraid of getting it wrong um but uh, this is that's probably one of the examples where we put so much pressure back on him and the team around them um to follow a process but in this situation they couldn't get into that process because he hadn't actually broken broken any law so i don't I don't have any issue with that, and, and I'm again, I'm all for player safety, and I'm all about head injuries. Um, but at the moment, that's not Robbie Henshaw didn't step outside the law, and I think we have to stick to the laws. Uh, yeah. Honestly, so I, 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 lots of people are are against me on that, but for me, it's a very aggressive tackle. Um, it's close to it. You know, it could have been a, a day, it could have been dangerous, but it was in the laws, and that's that's the issue. So, for but, me, but, but, I don't have any, I, I don't think that my Adams could do anything on that case. I'm glad that you agree with me because everybody else seems to be going against me. Whereas, like, you know, Robbie Henshaw assumed a risk there, right? I mean, you know, I mean, he gets that a, an inch or two wrong, and he is either sent off, potentially facing a, a three or four week ban, could put his lions, to, you know, in jeopardy, or even an injury to himself as well. He assumed the risk, and you know, he didn't break any laws. I understand that people think it looks like a, a rough tackle. It was, but rugby is a contact sport. Like, it's not tag rugby we're looking at here. Yeah, I think the, 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 the problem, though, sorry, you, is, you know, the optics. People have been watching and, you know, there's been so much talk about your entry point into the tackle, uh, trying to lower the height of the tackle. Uh, it just so happened that both players were upright and, and, and Birch is right. Technically, in relation to the law, he didn't do anything that warranted a yellow card or a red card. Uh, but I think to the, in, in terms of the optics of, you know, what rugby is trying to do and lower the point of the tackle, that one just, you know, it looked, it looked wrong. It felt wrong. But within the, lies of, uh, the eyes of the law, it was OK. So I can understand why there was, I can understand why Henderson was frustrated on the field. I can understand why it's generated so much debate. But uh, you've got to recognise that you, you've got to operate off the evidence that's in front of you. and. He didn't break the law, so that's whereas, it. Whereas I thought it looked great, to be honest. I thought it was a smashing tackle. I was just about to say it until Donna jumped in. It was because of the upright 
position of them going in that the heads were near together that it took that that it looked like something it wasn't but it's kind of a bizarre conversation to be having either he broke the rule or he didn't and he didn't so what are we, what, so why why have do we have four articles that I have read since Friday night people commenting that something should have happened here what's what, what am I missing like what's but because it looked reckless therefore he should have been given a sanction that actually is not in the rule book I don't understand yeah, why right, like there, there is an argument that you have to over legislate when it comes to contact with the head but then that needs to be stated that actually no the upper chest is now the new tackle line rather than the shoulder or whatever it may be we can't kind of I don't know, as far as I can see, there's no legal standing for any debate. Yeah. Hit him fair and square. And the Leinster bench got up, I was at the RDS, the Leinster got up and they roared with their appreciation for what they thought was a brilliant, a man and ball tackle that would have saved a try. There was two players outside Robert Balakoon that would have got the ball if he chipped it on. Henshaw prevented the try. He hit him hard and I thought it was a, it was a very good tackle. I mean, I, I just, I think we're beginning to, to lose the run of ourselves here, Bernard, where the game is just being, not, not the head contact. I'm all for protecting her heads, but that wasn't head contact. It was chest on chest, shoulder even, and there's nothing wrong with that in my book. Yeah, Robbie, Robbie uh, took on the risk. He, if he gets that, you know, 1%, uh, the other side, he's a red card and a, and a long ban. And that's the, that's the only thing we can... Um, we can have with players either break their law or they or, or they stay within the law, and they when they go to that extreme, they take on the risk. And that and on that occasion, Robbie didn't break any laws, so he, he he's fine. And I think there still has to be an element of of ability to be physical in the game. And um, Robbie made a decision and he executed it. It looked it looked bad. It was a big collision, but he again he wasn't high and. and um, that's it. It's like a fellow, you know, stretching for the line. Uh, this decision he makes, if he makes it as a try, if he's just short, he's just short. It's those kind of decisions happen all the way through the game. Here we're looking at a focus from a tackle point of view, um, and it's been watched and looked at for five minutes, um, and everyone has an opinion on it. And it's great people are worried about player safety. That's really important. But I would put it back on World Rugby if if the tackle line has to drop, well then it needs to go into the rules. I mean, you can't blame a player for executing what's legally allowed yeah because they're always going to push they're always going to push that you know what I mean yeah exactly exactly um, okay just a couple of things um, before we talk about uh, the Champions Cup final but briefly um, James Cronin you alluded to this earlier on Wes um, James Cronin leaving Munster is there a story here behind this what's the reading of it um, that he's been allowed to leave um, I don't know if there's a story behind it um, I, I presume it's just um, a budgetary thing um, well that's certainly what's been outlined yeah. Um, it's a little hard to understand. I suppose Dave Kilcoyne is, is undisputedly first choice there, and obviously Josh Witcherly is the next coming player. And and like in fairness, Jeremy Lockman is, is a good player as well. It's it's probably the position on the field they have the most depth in as they currently stand. Um, but for me, for a big European game, James Cronin will be will be number two. Um, and you know, in in the case of injury you wouldn't be too panicked about having to land James Cronin into, into an international game. So I think at 30 years of age for a prop, it's, it's, it's kind of a curious one to, uh, to see released, really. Yeah. What's your reading on it, Donald? I think it's an awful decision. I think the optics of it are poor. Uh, this is a homegrown fella. He's only 30 years of age. Hmm. You know, as well as the best three or four years are ahead of him. He's had a fantastic season. He's never started more games for Munster. Um, he is like uh, Dave Kilcoyne is is 
you know, he's neck and neck with Keen Healy for that Ireland loose head jersey at the moment. Uh, and James Cronin isn't that far behind him. To the extent, uh, you know, Kilcoyne missed a huge amount of, of rugby at the start of the year. If you remember, he injured his ankle in the very first game against Leinster in the, the a game from the previous season in September. Um, and, and James Cronin came in and he was outstanding. Um, it does come down to money, but I think this is a decision that they got wrong. Uh, Josh Witcherly is a fantastic young player. We saw the job he did. If you go back to the uh, the game against Claremont, but uh, geez, he had a fairly rough introduction. If you remember against Slimani, it uh, came back well, but we haven't seen him since. I don't know whether he's into the story with it, but basically, we, we uh, he, he's played very few minutes. You've Liam O'Connor is another good young loose header with a knee injury. He's come back. And Lachman, as we've seen, uh, I remember Lachman getting a man of the match against Ospreys in a in a, a Heineken Cup game about two years ago. So there is depth there. There's no question in my mind that James Cronin is a tight number two behind Killer. So therefore, there is no way you should be leaving a player of that stature go. I mean, make the budgetary cuts somewhere else. If you have to lose player 44 uh, in, able, in order to keep him, well, that's what you do because... If you're in a quarterfinal or a semi-final in Europe or, say, Rainbow Cup against uh, a, a big South African team mm. and Killer gets injured, when you see James Cronin coming in off the bench, like, you know, you're not worried. And the players around you aren't worried. Young Witcherly is still at a, a stage in his development where you'd be scratching your head, oh, geez, he could be caught badly here. So, therefore... Having Cronin around, especially if Kilcoyne is off with Ireland in November internationals and he misses a lot of games, then he is an integral part of the squad. I think it sends the wrong message. Um, uh, I put the light of another South African second or back row coming into the squad. Uh, how much is he costing? So in that context, I think it's it's a very poor decision. You're nodding away there, Birch. Yeah, it's madness because... Well, Munster lacking is, um, I think they're okay on the loose outside with Cronin and Kilcoyne in terms of having two players who can compete with, you know, their counterparts at the top end of European rugby. Um, Hooker-wise, yeah, they're losing Marshall. Uh, they're, I, I think they need a hooker. And, you know, tight head-wise, uh, I think, okay, with, I, I think they need a tight head. But, like, they're actually losing, they've strengthened, obviously, the second row with Jenkins and Snyman, um, you know, but... You may need to find the money. You need to find, and I agree with Donald. I'd rather have two or three players less between number forty-five and fifty, and have to go to the AIL to get a player if I'm stuck uh, to play a Pro fourteen match or Pro sixteen match next year. But have the artillery in on the in, in, or on the bench or on the starting team to be able to win a, a knockout stage match in Europe with James Cronin. Like they're not going to be able to replace James Cronin with an Irish qualified or non-Irish qualified equivalent. I reckon it's just down to mismanagement of their budget spending too much in, in certain areas and they're, they're going to, it's going to cost them. Uh, it'll cost them next year at some stage. And that's nothing against the youngsters. I'm all for the youngsters coming through, but particularly we need to understand in the front row, we need to give them extra time, you know? So uh, literally Liam O'Connor, like Cronin's 30. He's has that experience in the bank. He's been there, done that. Uh, and uh, I can only imagine it has to be for financial reasons. And I think it's one of the ones that, you know, if you're watching where you spend your money properly, um, it's a mistake. It's a, it's, it's money I would be willing to spend to have that second top end loose head there. Yeah. <clears throat> You'd imagine he won't be short of offers as well, particularly at the age that he is. 
And um, just quickly on the Heineken Cup final, um, where's La Rochelle against Toulouse? There'll be some um, notch on Ronald O'Gara's CV if he was to get the job done this weekend. Do you think they they will? I mean, how do you view the match? Tough one to kind of analyse, isn't it? Yeah, I think they have every chance. Um, their league, their league form is as good. Their European form has been good. They seem to have huge momentum behind them. Um, you look at the matchups in the team. I probably wouldn't have thought this before the Leinster game, but I think La Rochelle are well able for them in terms of the front five, in terms of just just power up there. Um, arguably a more informed back row as well. Um, I, do Toulouse possibly have a little, a few more X Factor players in the back line? Yeah, they probably do. I know Bottia and Rule and these guys have come in for huge praise, but you know it could be guys like uh, obviously Dupont and Intermac are the ones that spring to mind that that are the winners of a of a tight game. So, and I suppose that tradition that would that Toulouse have in the tournament counts for something as well. So, it's 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 very hard to call. I think to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised whichever way it went. Yeah, it'd be great to see Raj do it though, wouldn't it, Donald? Ah, it'd be fantastic. Look, he's 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 done a brilliant job there, uh, and it's a huge game in terms of. Uh, I think Toulouse, you know, from 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 the day I saw Munster Toulouse in the quarter final, I didn't think Toulouse are at that level really. I I I felt that whoever comes out of Leinster and uh, La Rochelle would be my favourites going into the final, despite the fact that La Rochelle haven't been there before. Now that said, psychologically, I think Toulouse have beaten. La Rochelle five times in their last six outings, so they know what they have to offer. I think a key element for me is midfield. Toulouse have had huge injuries in midfield. They've ended up playing Zach Holmes, who's a 10 at 13 at the quarterfinal and semi-final stages, and he's been a poor defender in that channel. I'm not quite sure. I saw Thomas Ramos was back in one of their squads. I'm not quite sure if, if they'll be able to pick somebody else in midfield, but I keep going back to in fact, I, I, I text Raj this last week. I don't know if he appreciated it or not. Um, but I said, look, if Munster can score 33 points against Toulouse, then I'd fancy that to win it. Um, and that is, and that was the one I thought defensively against Munster that were poor. Demian Delanda had probably his best game in a red shirt since he arrived. Um, so I think a lot could come down to that selection. In terms of up front, I'd say there's little or nothing between them. Um, you know, DuPont and Colby for me, they're the reasons you're tuning into the match. Uh, they're just so fantastic to watch. Uh, I'd love to see La Rochelle win it for, for the obvious reasons. Uh, but if they don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't begrudge Toulouse winning that fifth star. Toulouse, for me, going back to the very start of, of the Heineken Cup, going over there in the days when they were putting 50 points on Munster, they just had this little bit of magic, a bit of, uh, you know, that, that gold dust feel about them, everything. I mean, who... But I never ever came across a rugby club that had a Michelin star restaurant. I mean, that kind of set them apart from everyone else. So, uh, you know, if yeah. they do win it, I wouldn't be grudge. Um, Absolutely. Um, I, I imagine Raj will have to have a plan for Colby and Dupont as well. Birch, ironically, the two best players that are going to take to the pitch, well, certainly two of the best players in Europe at the moment, are also the smallest. But um, it'll be fascinating to see how they deal with the threat that Toulouse has. Yeah, I think if Leicester were going to this final, we'd be probably, um, you know, pretty optimistic that they could have uh, Toulouse's number. So I, I think La Rochelle are, um, they certainly have a fighting chance. Um, 
they have some unbelievably good individuals uh, who can take the game on in different ways than obviously DuPont or, or Ches and Kobe. But uh, yeah, and they, and they know them well. I mean, you know, some of the La Rochelle players play with, with DuPont at international level. They play against them twice a year um, in the top 14. Uh, I, I think La Rochelle, there's a bit of momentum there behind them. As Donald mentioned, Toulouse have had a couple of injuries. Um, they lost last weekend to Bayonne. I know they arrested a few players, but I think La Rochelle could go and win first time up. Um, just seem to have that, um, yeah, that, that momentum and that they're on a bit of a journey at the moment. Yeah. Um, just finally then, um, Donald, I just want to pay tribute. I, I thought it was interesting this week. We spoke about the Australian uh, rugby model going free to our television and the increase in numbers and all that it has produced right in playing numbers and in attendances and on television. But there are no doubt about the job they're going to have to do uh, standards-wise when the New Zealand club sides smashed them 5-0 over the weekend in the uh, Super Rugby uh, campaign. But I just wanted to mark the retirement of Kieran Reid um, because he, I think, will go down probably as one of the best number eights of the, of the professional era. Donald, um, a little bit understated, which sounds a bit weird as a, as a New Zealand captain, but certainly himself, Sergio Parise, have kind of led the way. Um, and he has just been a remarkable player over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, outstanding performer. Again, one of those players that you, you really admire and watch from, from the stand. Uh, I suppose, look, it's very difficult when you follow Richie McCaw as captain of the All Blacks. You're, you're automatically on a loser. I mean, uh, how do you better what he had done? Captain New Zealand to two World Cups in a row. In fact, was captain when they lost to France in that, uh, that famous quarterfinal in, in 07. But it, Reed. I mean, that, that back row that New Zealand had, McCaw, Jerome Kaino and Reid, like in terms of balance, power, uh, athletic ability, I, I thought they were the perfect trio. Um, and and Reid was an integral part of that. Uh, I thought he brought a new athleticism to that position. How many times did you see him sort of in the five-metre channels for New Zealand? Always his ability to link with people. Um, you know, he wasn't your sort of door gruff type of New Zealand forward either. Um, you know, he, he was understated in many ways, but he was one of those players who, who invariably, he never dropped below an 8 out of 10 in his performances. Uh, his try scoring record was huge. Um, and just an impressive individual. I remember it just happened to uh, be walking after the, the third test in New Zealand, which ended in a draw. And obviously he was captain to... You know, you're, you're, you're captain the All Blacks at home in a series against the Lions. You're expected to win. And I just happened to be walking in the tunnel in Eden Park about 45 minutes, 50 minutes maybe after the game. Steve Hansen and Kieran Reid were walking together, going to the press conference. I just happened to be standing parallel with them. And I, I, I know Steve Hansen from his time in Wales. And he kind of nodded and I nodded and, you know, he just made the comment about kissing your sister when you, you know, <laughs> uh, when you draw a series with the Lions. Yeah. But you could see Reed was absolutely devastated. But yet the way he carried it himself immediately, went into the press conference five minutes later. Um, so, look, I think he's a genuine good guy, an absolutely outstanding player. And, uh, you know, he'll go down as one of the all-time greats. Absolutely, yeah. That's Kieran Reid, not Kieran Reid, whereas as I managed to call him several times in commentary. Yeah, I've noticed that over the years, yeah. all right. Yeah, um, if I gave you a choice, just in final word to you, gave you a choice between Kieran Reid at the height of his powers or Sergio Parise for your team, who would you who would you sign? I'm probably at his very best when he won the Player of the Year awards, Reid. I think he's up there with 
there's a big debate about between him, Zinzan Brook, and Wayne Shelford as the best All Blacks set. I'd probably have him ahead of Brook and below Shelford if I was picking. Ready, okay, for those shovel hands then. Right, lads, um, pleasure as always. Enjoy the Heineken Cup final this weekend. We'll do it all again next week. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.